Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Lifestyle Mastery and today I'm excited to have Lawrence Ingras here, who's the author of the book Billion Dollar Brand Club, uh, which is a book about upstart brands taking on corporate giants that long dominated the trillion dollar consumer economy. Lawrence has worked for more than four decades, uh, has worked with in the best uh, of papers in America, which is the New York Times, Wall Street Journal and Los Angeles Times. Uh, uh, Lawrence is an alumni of University of Illinois. Uh, welcome to the show, Lawrence. Thank you, Rohit. Awesome. So, you know, so, you know can, you, can you walk through your, your, your journey and what made you write the book, uh, The Billion Dollar Plan Club? Well, you know, not long ago, like just about everyone else in America, I began seeing a lot of new brands I'd never heard of for right. razor blades, eyeglasses, mattresses, bras. Well, you know, just about any product you could think of. And, you know, kind of what's going on, I wondered. And, you know, if you think about it, these products all had something in common. Uh, at least in the U.S. A lot of people had found them expensive or a hassle to buy or both. Uh, you know, a pair of glasses in the U.S. can cost as much as $700. And razor baits are so expensive that they were often locked behind a counter and you, could, you had to ask a clerk to get them. And shopping for a mattress was a, a pretty miserable experience. And so in, in looking at this, I, you know, kind of, I, found that there were a lot of fascinating stories uh, because these companies were started by an unlikely bunch of entrepreneurs, most of them in their 20s and 30s. And the companies they started, like Dollar Shave Club, Warby Parker, Casper, Third Love Bras, and many others, you know, they came out of nowhere and outmaneuvered much bigger rivals by selling these products online. And, you know, in a matter of just a few years, these companies change what we buy and how we buy things. And along the way, they created a blueprint for entrepreneurs who wanted to build billion dollar brands. And so I just wanted to tell their stories and find out how they did it. Got it. And, uh, you know, what is it about the D2C brands that they're able to execute uh, much faster than the others? You know, why, why, you know, usually when, when an entrepreneur wants to, wants to start a project, uh, they usually worried that, that a bigger brand like, like a Gillette or, uh, or a PNG would be able to copy their idea and execute it much faster. But what we've seen in the last 10 years is that that has not been the case. So, so why is it that the D2C brands are able to execute it much faster than, than, than the well, biggies? You know, I think, you know, I think the most important thing is that technology has come along and leveled the playing fields and made it possible for these companies to ramp up, as you note, very quickly and challenge uh, existing players in ways that really would have been unimaginable um, a, a decade ago. And, you know, you know, think of it in a few, in a few ways, you know, kind of, so how has that happened? Well, uh, you know, nowadays it's very easy to find someone to make your product for you rather than having to build a factory or make it yourself. You can go to Asia and get very sophisticated manufacturing to your specs. And in fact, they'll even help you design the product if you want design help. Um, so that was one of the things that was really you know, kind of big. Second, social media meant you could advertise for a really small amount of money. 
you know, sometimes thousands of dollars only, uh, rather than spend tens of millions of dollars on TV, advertising, uh, hiring a bid advertising agency, spending a lot of time to produce uh, an ad campaign. You could do that very quickly, almost overnight, uh, and reach a very broad audience. In fact, you could target that advertising at the people most likely to buy your product, which was very hard on television. And another thing, you no longer had to beg a retailer to carry your products because you could sell online directly to your consumers. Again, a really big change. Uh, retailers uh, have limited shelf space. So when a new company comes along, they're thinking, you know, why do I need another razor? You know, I already carry Gillette and maybe Schick. Uh, that's plenty for my, cons my customers. Uh, you're just going to crowd them out, and I don't know how many you're going to sell. Well, the Internet has unlimited shelf space. Uh, the Internet can, you know, kind of uh, help you sell to anybody, anywhere, and let anybody set up a, sh uh, a, a storefront, as it were. In fact, you know, now there are uh, uh, websites that you don't even have to do this for yourself. Shopify is a virtual storefront. You pay them $30 a month, as little as $30 a month, and you can start selling products there. And then the final thing is that there was a logistics revolution in the U.S., which made it possible to deliver goods directly to the consumer in a very short period of time, a day or two, uh, compared to a week or more uh, in the past, and at a relatively small cost. All these things came together at the same time to enable companies to uh, get started very fast and to test their product and uh, uh, improve on their product quickly uh, after they got it onto the marketplace. Again, most of these companies could not exist 10 or 15 years ago. Interesting to point out that technology has been an enabler and um, also, you know, with with millennials and Gen Z's, uh, you know, they're not looking to buy the same products which the parents would be would be buying. So, you know, right. uh, uh, how's how's DTC brands, you know, change this outlook for, for consumers, you know, especially millennials and Gen Z's who not only looking into into buying a product, but they're also looking at what sort of brand messaging is coming from the brand. Uh, you know, which, which should resonate with their values? Yeah, I think that's a terrific question because a lot, a lot of these people were ready for new brands that resonated to them and also that they could connect with. You know, a lot of people call these brands direct-to-consumer brands. I also call them connect-with-consumer brands. So because these brands uh, sell online, you know, they're talking to their consumers. They know who their consumers are. They can talk to them directly. They can message them directly. They can gather data on them. In contrast, you know, Gillette doesn't really know who its customers are. They walk into a store, a retail store, and buy its products, but the pro that, that retailer is the intermediary. So, you know, these brands knew that they could reach their customers directly and, and resonates with them. You know, perhaps the, the best uh, example of this was Dollar Shave Club. It was launched with a very funny video, it was a, a minute and a half, that made fun of Gillette without ever mentioning Gillette, but yeah. also was, uh, you know, kind of appealed directly to the consumers. It was kind of a hip message to young consumers. Why are you paying so much? You know, we're going to send these directly to your uh, uh, door. I mean, it sounds so simple now but it was revolutionary. It was a revolutionary idea back then. In fact, you know, I had heard about uh, 
uh, Dollar Shave Club even before the company had launched because the founder was a daughter of, uh, was, excuse me, was a friend of my daughter's. And I thought it was the craziest idea I had ever heard. I mean, I thought, how are you possibly going to compete with Gillette? Gillette has a great product. It spends hundreds of millions of dollars a year on marketing. And uh, it, it has a 70% market share in the United States and in many countries outside the U.S. as well. But Michael Dubin, the founder, had this idea that they were vulnerable because they didn't connect with their consumers. In fact, they kept increasing prices by adding very incremental improvements. And that if you came along and offered a good product at a reasonable price, and also kind of made it a little bit fun, made it a little bit hip to, to buy Razor online, that you could build a big company rather quickly. And he managed to do that. I, I mean, I, I couldn't believe it when I heard a few years back that Unilever bought the company for a billion dollars. And this was a company, and I can tell you, virtually nobody thought that was going to succeed. In fact, after my uh, uh, book was published, I had uh, uh, an executive at a big consulting firm who's, who uh, wrote me and said, if you had told me 10 years ago that somebody was going to reinvent the shaving category and make razors cool, I would have thought you were crazy. And, you know, uh, uh, Dollar Shave Club created a big bit of a blueprint. Warby Parker was another example. Uh, we're going to sell you glasses online and, you know, kind of we're going to make it easy for you and we're going to have good design and we're going to have hip marketing. It very much appealed to uh, young consumers who were, uh, whose, whose habits hadn't been set in the past, who were open to new ideas, new ways of buying things and new brands. Right. Interesting that you pointed out that, you know, these brands are able to connect with the consumers, but are there any aspects of, you know, marketing or branding, which is done by D2C brands, which companies from other sectors, like, you know, fintech companies or, you know, health sector companies can, can emulate uh, so that they are also able to connect with, uh, with, uh, with the consumers, uh, especially with the millennials and Gen Zs. I, I do think that they can, and, uh, but it has to feel authentic as opposed to artificial. Uh, yeah. and, and these companies are, are quite good about it, and they have to listen to their customers. And I think that that brings in some of the authenticity. You know, for example, Glossier, which is a cosmetics company uh, that has been very successful. Uh, it was started uh, by a young woman who uh, had... Uh, a, a beauty blog in her 20s. And the, the blog was so popular that she, she decided to build a company selling cosmetics. The interesting thing is there's a constant uh, feedback loop with uh, her customers. So for example, there was one customer, an African-American woman who said, hey, I really, not even telling anything to uh, Glossier, but who had started a blog and she wrote, hey, I really like your pro Glossier's products, but they don't have tints for darker skinned women uh, for some of their products. Glossier saw that, invited her to their office in New York, and then worked with her to develop a couple of new tints that appealed to uh, a, a different segment of the audience that it had ignored till then. So one of the keys is listening to your customers and then you know, building products that they want. And I think that companies do this. I mean, big companies can do this too, but it's very hard because they've got so many layers between themselves and their customers. 
But startups don't start with all those layers. They can be dealing directly with their customers. And so whether it's the messaging their customers want or the product that their customers want, they can move quickly. They can pivot quickly and try to address that. And I think that applies to just about any type of uh, uh, product as well as basic consumer products. Got it. Yeah, you know, absolutely right that, you know, startups can, can really pivot and, uh, and get to their uh, the product market fit. And, uh, you know, what, what I've also, also seen is a lot of money has gotten to, you know, Facebook ads and Google ads because a lot of these online companies don't have to set up their, uh, their physical stores. But, but, but what it also leads up to is higher cost of acquisition. Yes. Uh, and and what is what I've also realized is that you know there there lot of other companies in the you know uh, in the same sector who've been trying to beat the Wabi Parkers or the the Caspers. Uh, so what is the best way uh, you know to scale up such businesses because you can't uh, be always reliant on Facebook and Google ads forever. In fact, you know, kind of what what happened was those costs uh, of of reaching customers. Uh, five or 10 years ago was much lower than it is today. And this is one of the biggest challenges, I think, facing direct-to-consumer brands is how to keep the cost of acquisitions down. Mm -hmm. Now, it's still quite effective uh, for a lot of companies. And that's why a lot of them are still advertising on Facebook and Google and Instagram. But what you found is that companies also try to uh, do things that get their customers to help get out the word. So for example, going back to Glossier, uh, you know, it's, it's opened a couple of stores. And one of the things that it has at the stores is places set aside, kind of fun places in the store where people can take selfies and then, you know, send out those selfies on their social media channels. That's, that's basically free advertising, right? Because you have your customers sending out things for you. You're not, you're not spending anything on that. You know, you, you know, you have to be very smart in figuring out how to do that and get people to do that. But if you can crack that, that can help lower your cost because it brings in other customers. They're doing your marketing uh, for you. Um, you know, companies are also looking at uh, some different retail uh, physical retail aspects. The cost of physical retail stores have gone down. So some companies are either opening their own stores or once they get established, they are selling through other retail stores. Quip Toothbrush, which is one of the successful electric toothbrush startups in, in the U.S. Um, for a long time sold online only, but then about two years ago started selling on, uh, at Target stores. And when I asked the founder, Simon Enneber, why he was doing that, he said, well, you know what? Many millions of people are walking through Target stores around the U.S. Uh, every day so, and every week. So what we're, we want to reach those people because not everybody buys online. In fact, you know, even though there's been a huge increase of, of uh, e-commerce, uh, still you know, 80 to 90%, depending on the product category, you know, it bought in physical retail stores. So the trick that companies need to uh, solve is uh, try to create a presence as quickly as possible online and then look for different ways, different markets to reach broader audiences. 
but this is the, probably the biggest challenge uh, that companies face. I, Neil Blumenthal, the founder of Warby Parker, said it's uh, easier than ever to start a new product company to, to launch a new brand, but it's still hard to scale that up because scaling up can be expensive. Uh, no, no, you're absolutely right. It's easy to start, but really difficult to to build a brand and also to scale scale it up. Um, uh, but but you know, in the last couple of years, what has happened is we've got an IPO from Casper, and uh, we got acquisitions in the D two C space, which is especially the the Dollar Shave Club. Uh, but but do you think they're going to be more IPOs or or acquisitions because uh, the the Casper's I, IPO did not really uh, go as well? I think right. Uh, same is the case with we can say about WeWork or Uber for that matter, but, but where do you think the trend is going to be more acquisitions or they're going to be more IPOs uh, in these? So uh, I, I, I think there would have been a bit more of both. I mean, right now we're in an odd period with the coronavirus and it's affecting economies and everything I think is a little bit on hold and that presents a new uh, conundrum for, for a lot of companies. But if you look at uh, uh, Casper, I, I think that Casper uh, obviously created a very strong brand name, but, it raised so much money that I believe it was not particularly disciplined with the way it was spending its money. And that's why it ended up losing money. So when it went public, you know, and did its IPO, it wasn't as well received. In contrast, uh, there are a couple of other new DTC mattress bands that I think have done better and managed themselves better. And the reason they did is that they didn't have all that funding to spend on marketing. And they had to make sure that whatever they spent, they were really careful about. So one of the companies is Purple Innovation. Uh, Purple mattresses have been very successful. It's about the biggest company as uh, Casper. And it is break even or close to break even in contrast to Casper losing money. And I think that's because, and it's a public company, by the way, it didn't do an IPO, but it did kind of a reverse IPO where it bought a public company and merged into that company. So there's an example of a company that was successful in the same category as uh, Casper in mattresses. Similarly, Tough to Needle uh, started by a couple of entrepreneurs who had worked in, as software engineers in Silicon Valley. They bootstrapped. They raised, unlike Casper, they didn't raise venture capital money. So from the very start, they had to be very disciplined with the way they spent the money, and they were profitable from early on. And about a year and a half ago, they, uh, they uh, spent about a year and a half ago, uh, they uh, sold the company for 400 to $500 million to Sealy, uh, uh, Serta Simmons, sorry. And that is a great example of, uh, you know, kind of how you, if being very focused and being disciplined, you, you can succeed. And I think that's an important point. Not all of these companies are going to be winners. Some of them will be big winners. Others will be, I think, modest winners. And then you'll have niche players who will be successful. Uh, but you'll, you'll have a combination of companies going public, companies staying independent, and uh, companies being acquired you know, going forward. Although right now, I believe there's going to be a pause. Right. Interesting. You know, you, you point about coronavirus. We we recording this this podcast uh, around March, uh, and uh, you know, there's been a lot of uh, 
a discussion about how a lot of manufacturing units are focused only in China. Uh, but but do you think in future, uh, especially with US brands, uh, are, there, are, are there going to be uh, you know diversification of these manufacturing companies outside of China, maybe in India or Mexico or other you know developing companies uh, countries? I, I think I think there will have to be. I think that the uh, concentration of manufacturing and the over-reliance, whether it's on the final product or ingredients or parts from you know, one source is not a good idea. And I think a lot of companies ignored that for a long time. They, they underestimated the risk of that. And now those risks are becoming clear. So I think this will benefit a lot of different places. I think it will benefit other parts of Asia. I think it will benefit India. I think it will probably benefit Mexico. And it may even benefit the United States. There may be a little bit more of a comeback of manufacturing in in the United States. We will have to see that because it takes a while for those supply chains to change and to adjust. But if there is any company in the US now that is not at least thinking about its supply chain and trying to reassess the risk in various ways, then they are making a big mistake in my view. Right. And, uh, you know, we, we still uh, are not really sure about the replications of, uh, of, uh, you know, uh, coronavirus, but, uh, but, you know, if, if a recession happens, you know, what, what we've generally seen is that capital intensive uh, brands or T2C brands get lower capital from, uh, lower amount of capital from VCs because, you know, they're low margin businesses. So, but do you think, you know, D2C brands, uh, will, uh, will, uh, you know, how will they be able to endure this kind of, uh, of a recession if it happens? This, this definitely will test them. There is no doubt about that. This will test a lot of businesses, especially right. depending how long uh, the economy uh, is uh, curtailed, even shut down in places. I mean, I think one advantage that these companies has have is that they're very used to doing most of their business online and not selling through retailers. Right. So with a lot of people not going to stores and avoiding going out and some cities being in virtual lockdown, there's still, you can still buy things online. Now, of course, that means you have to get the, 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 the company that is selling them has to be able to get supplies of them. And that is the one, one tricky thing, but you can still sell things online. Having said that, you know, I, I think this is, this is a really important mo- uh, moment for many of these companies. No doubt they're going to have to, become extremely focused to have to start uh, looking at ways of saving costs, whether it's on marketing or uh, staffing or whatever, because they are unlikely to get a new infusion of money as easily as they might have six months or a year or two ago. It's just gonna be a lot harder. So I, I would expect them to be two things. I would expect them to start conserving their resources as much as possible and no doubt, the ones that maybe were not doing as well, the ones that you know, came in later and were not market leaders, but they were like the third or the fourth uh, entry in a category, and so, so they haven't gained a lot of traction yet, it's going to be hard for them to survive, probably. There, there will be some of them fail. But unfortunately, that's true throughout the economy. I think that you're going to have a lot of products, a lot of companies, uh, especially startups of all sorts, small businesses of all sorts, 
you know, they don't, they, they don't operate with a lot of uh, backup capital. So they're going to have a hard time. I, I, that's why I hope that the uh, uh, coronavirus problem gets under control as quickly as possible, because otherwise, broadly, the economy is going to suffer and small companies, startups will suffer disproportionately. And they're so important to the, all of our economies and economic growth that that would be uh, really unfortunate. Right. And, uh, you know, I was, I was reading the, the book uh, and uh, where, where I uh, uh, saw that, you know, Forerunner Venture Partners have invested in, in, into Caspers and, uh, and to a Dollar Shave Club and a lot of other, other categories, you know. And what you're seeing is disruptions in mattresses, shaving, eyewear, clothing. And, and I didn't even know about uh, handmade shoes also. But, but do you think there are any other sectors where which, which you believe strongly uh, where the disruption is uh, still to happen, so that you know gives a couple of ideas to the listeners, you know, looking into in, into so, new. So one category, and I, I think this is a little bit more particular to the U.S. than right. to uh, other countries, is is healthcare. I mean, the healthcare system in the U.S. is there's a lot of uh, very high pricing, and the you know delivery of services isn't that good. So I think that there's huge potential. Plus, it's a, it's a very, very big market, you know, kind of billions, trillions of dollars, whether it's products or services. So one of the companies I wrote about in the uh, book, uh, Billion Dollar Brand Club, is Ergo. It's a hearing aid company, and it sells quality hearing aids direct to consumer for about half the price of hearing aids you can buy uh, from the other major manufacturers, long-established manufacturers. Uh, I think that they have a good chance of succeeding. Uh, similarly, you know, there's companies that are selling some drugs online and are trying to make it easier, more accessible, and a little bit cheaper for people to buy uh, and to give them advice. The, anything that you can do to streamline that process to develop relationships with consumers and to lower the prices is going to give you an opportunity to succeed. In fact, you know, the best uh, examples of where there have been successes in DD2 uh, direct-to-consumer brands is where uh, categories have been dominated by a handful of players that you know, don't always put consumers first. They may have good products, but their prices are high and their services aren't so good or they aren't as convenient. And so if I would look at one category that I think is ripe for disruption that hasn't been disrupted as much to date because it can be a little bit difficult. That would be healthcare. And anybody who can figure that out, you know, kind of there's a lot of opportunity there. I mean, even, you know, if you talk about another example, Smile Direct Club, which sells uh, uh, teeth straightening uh, and, and teeth alignment uh, devices. Um, you know, it, it, it did an IPO six months ago or so, and uh, in the uh, fall of 2019, and it was very highly priced, and the stock promptly dropped. But it has upwards of 1 million customers. Think about that. And it did this because it, its prices are much lower than you could get by going to an orthodontist to get your teeth fixed. Uh, so it's, again, a category where uh, by offering a better price and a good service, there is huge potential to succeed.
that interesting you you talk about healthcare but, uh, because you know um we we uh, i i never understood why we are inspired of obama and uh, taking some initiatives towards uh, improving healthcare and even amazon trying to get into healthcare you know uh, why is it that it is it is so expensive why the healthcare is so expensive uh, out in us why do you think this uh, nobody has been able to solve the problem in the last couple of years I, I, I think it's because uh, the system is uh, set up to uh, benefit a lot of the companies. The existing companies want to keep regulations in place. They want to try to block competition, for example. Uh, when you go to um, looking, I was talking about Smile Direct Club. They've uh, gotten a lot of criticism for orthodontists because orthodontists obviously are, you know, kind of potentially could lose business if if that takes on, and so. Uh, a lot of the problem is that you have vested interests trying to maintain their, if not monopolies, then their oligopolies. They're, they're, they're trying to maintain their market position and block competition. And when you have the channels of dis- distribution controlled, that, then you can block competition. But when the channels of distribution are opened up because of technology and people can buy things on the internet or uh, uh, deal directly with doctors online and they don't have to go to a hospital. They don't have to, you know, go through a, a, a clinic. All of a sudden the barriers of entries fall. And that is what uh, creates the opportunity for startups to uh, take advantage of. This gives them an opening to try to reach out directly to consumers and try to address the issues that have frustrated customers for a long time. Right. And, and uh, you know, do you have any final advice for founders who are entering the, the fundraising process, you know, considering the, the multiples have been lower for, for, for D2C brands and uh, could, be, could be testing times going forward? Yeah, you know, look, these things always come in uh, ebbs and flows. Uh, and I, I think it, this, it, it has long been, you know, kind of a good time. And, you know, especially with what's happening with the economies worldwide, this is going to be a tougher time. But, you know, I, I think, again, look at, you know, what, what's most important. Look for an idea and look for a problem and solve it. Look, for, uh, find a need and fill it. If you do that, your chances of success will uh, increase. Second, um, create a bond with your customer and try to make that bond as tight as possible so they feel that you know, they are vested in you and that you are giving them something that they can't get elsewhere from one of the bigger uh, existing companies. And then, you know, when you have that, when you have this, uh, 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 you know, kind of thing that really will connect with people, that will improve your chance of getting funding. I'm not saying it will be easy, especially in the current environment, but all these companies that, the ones that have succeeded the most are companies that have done those things. Right. And, uh, you know, I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, I'd have to, you know, kind of now you're now you've put me on the spot and have to think about it. Um, uh, let's see. I, I thought, you know, kind of uh, bad blood uh, about yeah. the decline of Theranos was a terrific, terrific book. Um, that you know, kind of shows the pitfall. You want to dream big, but you also want to be realistic. And I think that uh, uh, there's a company that dreamed too big, but wasn't realistic. 
and right. got itself in, in trouble. Um, you know, kind of, and, you know, another one, you know, kind of go back many years, but Barbarians at the Gate, and it was a seminal book about, you know, kind of Wall Street during, you know, kind of the takeover years. And it shows a lot of the risk of, um, you know, uh, uh, kind of going crazy with takeovers. And finally, Too Big to Fail about uh, the financial crisis in 2008. You know, all those books are riveting uh, uh, reads. They are really compelling and bring to life. I mean, I think that one of the things I try to do in my book is through the founders of these companies really bring this, these companies to life. There's a lot of drama in, in business. Yeah. And by, you know, kind of telling the stories through the people on the front lines and in Billion Dollar Brand Club, that's the founders of these companies, you can really make it interesting, fun, and informative all at once. Got it. I'll, I'll put that in the show notes. And, you know, if you could go back in time when you started uh, writing a book, uh, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? Uh, wow. Uh, you know, when, when you're doing something that is happening in real time, it's just, it's challenging because you're having to con, uh, constantly adjust. I'm not sure I would have done anything differently. There are a couple of companies that in retrospect, you know, I might have included. And uh, that, that's the only thing. I mentioned Shopify as a company that, that really has enabled a lot of these companies. I think that's a fascinating company and, and having a chapter on them might have been really interesting. But right. I'm actually quite pleased with, you know, kind of the book. What I wanted to do was to tell, you know, kind of the story of the origins of this movement and how it changed, you know, kind of what we buy and how we buy, because I just found it fascinating as a, as you noted, I've been a business journalist for many years, and this right. is one of the most interesting business revolutions of the past couple of decades, I believe. And so I'm really happy uh, with the way it came out and by telling it through the founders and the companies that uh, are in the book. Interesting. And uh, do you have any favorite online tools, for example, Gmail, Slack, uh, Zoom? You know, I, 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 Zoom is great. Uh, I've just started using it, especially since publishing the book, because it right. enables me to connect with people around the U.S. and, and around the world. Uh, Gmail, I, I don't use Slack when you're working by yourself. I don't think you need to have uh, Slack nearly as much. Um, right. uh, but I, I would say those are the main things now that you mentioned them. Right. And also, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn, and I, I think a lot of people are, and it's a great tool, especially as in, for anybody in business. Um, you know, kind of, or a journalist to be able to, to reach out to people. In fact, I think that's how you reached out to me. Absolutely. I was about to say that to be, be connected <laughs> on LinkedIn. <laughs> awesome. It's a brilliant business tool for, and, you know, people can find suppliers. They can find, you know, uh, learn a little bit about their competitors. They can connect with experts. It's just, a, you know, kind of a, a, a real valuable tool. No, absolutely. I, I, I usually uh, connect with a lot of founders and VCs and startup entrepreneurs through LinkedIn. And uh, that's why you, that's how most of them come onto, onto the podcast. So it's a very valuable uh, tool for sure. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, what, what are the best way people can reach out to you and know more about the book, The Billion Dollar Prank Club? Uh, look, you can buy it on just about any, uh, at any online bookstore. But if you want to know a little bit more about me, uh, my background, a little bit what my career, what I've done, and also uh, uh, read reviews, which have been very positive. Go, all that is on my uh, webpage, www.larryingrassia.com. L-A-R-R-Y-I-N-G-R-A-S-S-I-A.com. 
a lot of resources there. So sure, we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, uh, thank you so much for, for coming onto the show, uh, uh, Lawrence, and many best wishes for, for the book. My, my pleasure, Rohit. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.